Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Uh, today's part three of what is going to be a four-part sermon series here at the conclusion uh, to the letter of the Galatians. So we uh, have already covered two of these, and as we do each week, we're going to begin by reading Galatians 6, verses 11 to 18, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on our time in his word. So if you're there, now please look at verse 11. Paul writes, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it is only because of your work on the cross, that we are here today, that we can have hope, hope for acceptance by God, hope to be forgiven of our sins, to be reconciled to, to the Father. If not for you, Jesus, we, we would have absolutely nothing but God's wrath. And we are mindful of that this morning. We have sung of that And I pray that by the time we're done in your word today, we will be reminded and convicted of that anew, that we will go out of here then as the ministers of reconciliation that you have called us to be, that we are proclaiming this message of reconciliation, that all we have is Jesus and he is all we need. And so Spirit, please work in us today, show us these things, impress them on our heart from your word. Speak through your word to us each, we ask this morning, and make us like Christ and the ultimate ambassador of you reconciling the world to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask a question. It's a little bit odd, and it's odd on purpose, so don't answer it just in your own mind. Think about it. Um, How many of you remember the days of public shame? Okay, that's a strange question, and you're probably, some of you at least, are sitting there going, what do you mean the days of public shame. I'm referring to, you know, the time in life where there were some things that people recognized as being shameful, just generally speaking, in the culture around us. You know, you didn't have to necessarily be a Christian or not a Christian, just there was just an, a general concept of shame that we held together as a culture. Um, it seems to me, as we look around today, that there's not much of that left in the world. Um, things that we, you know, would call sinful that we would have called sinful blatantly, openly, any, even unbelievers would have said were wrong 25, 30, 50, 100 years ago are now celebrated. I was just thinking through various examples. Homosexuality is an easy one to pick on, but I remember even you know, hearing about unmarried couples living together, shacking up. There's a phrase you don't hear anymore, right? Um, 
I remember as a kid hearing about somebody doing that and being like, everybody, everyone in the, around us were like, oh my goodness, that's terrible. How could that be? I mean, that was North Carolina. It was Southern culture. So maybe it was different where you're from and that wouldn't have been a big deal. Uh, similarly, I can think of, you know, hearing about someone getting pregnant out of wedlock and that being a really big deal to anyone and everyone who heard of it. I mean, entire families feeling ashamed about that. Um, maybe sometimes even sending the girl away or having a shotgun wedding, you know, again, phrase you don't hear very often anymore, but that kind of stuff. Even if I move out of the area of sin, I can still come up with a few examples. In fact, my own personal life story is kind of a story of public shame in a way, funny enough. Uh, most of you know, because I've said it repeatedly over the years, that I'm from Goldsboro, North Carolina. That's what I always tell people. But in reality, I wasn't born in Goldsboro. I was born in Greenville, North Carolina, which is about an hour east of there. Well, when I was you know, about five or six years old, how do we end up in Goldsboro? When I was about five or six years old, um, my dad slipped a disc in his back really bad. Okay, I mean, like, it was a, I don't know how significant it was, but it was pretty significant. Uh, the, the day, I don't remember it super well. The day was, you know, my mom and I must have left the house first. She was probably dropping me off at school on her way to work. So dad was at home by himself getting ready. He bent over to do something or get something, slipped a disc, crumpled to the ground, uh, to the floor, and that was where he stayed the rest of the day. This is the day of no cell phones, kids, okay? So the ones who don't know how, like, how could he not call somebody? That was how, because he couldn't crawl to a phone. He didn't have one with him, and he laid there the rest of the day uh, until my mom came home, or my mom and I came home and found him. Uh, you know, of course, he had to go to the hospital, which, you know, led to an invasive back surgery. This is 1983, 84, somewhere right in there. So back surgeries in the early 80s were a big deal. When you had a back surgery, you were out for a long time. And sure enough, that was the case for him. Um, it was a terrible surgery. He ended up, I know it was at least a month, it maybe had been two months, that he had to lie flat on his back doing nothing at home, out of work during that time period. Um, add into this part of the story, my dad was a Marine he was a Vietnam vet. He had spent two uh, year-long tours in Vietnam. On his second tour there, he was put in charge of something, and I know it's not called this today, but at the time it was called Graves Registration. What that meant was, was that he was the guy that every Marine who was killed in action came to him in his little area, and he would process their remains, put them in a body bag, get them you know, all the paperwork done, put them on a plane, and send them back home for burial. And that was his job. Like... <laughs> all day long, processing remains of dead Marines. Um, he saw terrible things, as you can imagine, right? I mean, it's just terrible things for an entire year. He, it, it bothered him tremendously, but he was able to keep it at bay. Like, when he came back from, from war and went back to normal life, he ended up getting in a car accident and got out of the Marine Corps, but um, he had kept it at bay for a long time, and that was until he had to lie flat on his back. So here he is lying there for a month or two months now with nothing to do but think. And as he does this, he begins to think about all of that and everything he saw, and it began to have an effect on him. And he began to um, have terrible nightmares, uh, flashbacks. I mean, just he fell apart mentally, had a mental breakdown. He ended up being put in a psych ward at the VA hospital in Durham. I didn't understand what was going on as a kid. I was a little bit young to understand the details of, of what was happening. I just knew Dad was in the hospital, and we'd go visit him on the weekend, uh, see him there. But, you know, of course, missed him. But, you know, 
this was what was going on. Uh, eventually, he came back home, but it was definitely different at that point. Dad was basically crippled now, and you know, not just physically because he couldn't lift things anymore. He couldn't do what he used to do. He used to kind of be the manager of like a Home Depot. We didn't have Home Depots in Eastern North Carolina back in the 80s, so similar to that. There's a lot of physical work. He couldn't do that anymore. Um, he had a GED. He never finished high school, so he couldn't get a different kind of job. So he was basically unemployed at this point. Plus, mentally, he just wasn't the same. Uh, so my poor mom is having now to take care of me and him, also having to be the primary breadwinner in our home. And that was a little bit of the problem because my parents, prior to all of this, had been a two-income home. And unfortunately, they had lived their life on two incomes. So all their expenses required two incomes to, to make ends meet. And now dad's out of work for it's probably about two years at this point uh, since the whole thing started. And before we knew it, we were moving out of our house. I didn't know why didn't care at the time because we were moving into an apartment and right across from our apartment was the pool. And so I was like, woohoo, this is awesome. You know, got a pool right across from, uh, from where we live now. And so I was all focused on that and excited about that. We lived there for a year. Then we rented a little house for a year. And it was while we were in that second house that my parents came to me one night and said, hey, we need to talk to you. Set me down. I'm nine by this point. So, you know, this is probably about a three-year window all this is happening in. Um, they're like, hey, look, um, we're filing bankruptcy. I didn't know what bankruptcy was as a nine-year-old, but I knew it was bad because, you know, clearly it was bothering them. They're affected by it. Mom and dad are both crying. I'm scared now. Right? We're listening to all this, trying to figure out what's going on. You know, the house has been foreclosed on. That's why we moved out. Um, it's about to be put in the paper because that's what you did, at least back then. I don't know if they still do that today. There's going to be a notice that, you know, William and Kizzy Potts filed bankruptcy, and if you have any credit, you know, with them, you want to do anything, come to the courthouse on such and such a date public auction, all this stuff is going to happen. Um, and everyone was going to know this. And at that time, in that part of North Carolina, bankruptcy was an issue of public shame. And we're talking about a town where you read the obituary, the crime section, and the public notice section in the newspaper every single day. Okay? And any of you grew up in a town like that or even know what I'm talking about? You wanted to know all the dirt on everyone around you kind of thing? Uh, that was the kind of town we were in. And so my mom is... is beside herself embarrassed, so embarrassed that we moved away. The reason we moved to Goldsboro was to avoid the public shame of the bankruptcy. Now, for some of you who are younger and you hear that, you're probably like, really? Like, your entire family moved? Like, because today people file bankruptcy all the time and no one even cares about it, right? It's like not even an issue anymore to, for someone to do that. I know people younger than me who have already filed bankruptcy multiple times. And so for us now, all that shame is gone, but it wasn't gone back then. And so, you know, that's the honest truth. We moved to a whole new city simply because of that kind of public shame. And I was trying to think, is there, any, is there anything in our culture today, anything at all that is so bad, so embarrassing to us that if it were to happen to one of our families, we'd be like, I, we've got to leave town. <laughs> like, we can't stay put. And I honestly can't think of anything. The whole concept of public shame seems to be seeming gone nowadays, except for maybe, you know, if you believe in Jesus or you want to talk about the truth or talk about righteousness. Outside of that, there's really nothing to be ashamed of anymore. So hold that thought for just a moment. And let's remember what we have seen here up through verse 13 in Galatians 6. Paul's concluding his letter. 
and he is reminding the Galatians about some of the key points of his arguments. He's just rehashing a bit right here at the end because he wants to make sure he, he leaves them with all the important details to remember. And so far, he's told us that the false teachers, the ones he says here would make a good showing in the flesh, they want to force the Galatians to be circumcised. Emotional force, religious force, cultural force, whatever the case may be, you want to force them to be circumcised, but they're doing it primarily for two reasons. First, they're doing it out of fear. They don't want to be persecuted because accepting the gospel as Paul has preached it, that of salvation alone, salvation through grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, will for a Jew bring persecution. It will bring rejection. It will mean that you're going to lose everything. You're going to be persecuted. You maybe will even be killed. This is offensive and repulsive to the Jews. And so these false teachers fear this and therefore reject it and are teaching another gospel. Secondly, they're doing it out of pride, we learned last Sunday. They want the Galatians to be circumcised and to keep the law. Um, so, you know, even though they themselves don't keep it, but they're, they're pushing this, they're advocating this so that they can go back to wherever it is they came from and say, look at what we did in Galatia. They want to go back to Jerusalem or, again, wherever it is they came from and, and say, look at, at all the people that we brought back to the law. Or look at all the, the Gentiles that we, we converted, we made into proselytes who are now going to keep the law of Moses. So now this is a, you know, a self-worth thing, a self-value thing for them. These false teachers are planning to boast in the Galatians' flesh. Paul lays all of that out for us here in verses 12 and 13, which are, by design, totally focused on the false teachers, their methods and motivations. But now, starting in verse 14, Paul turns the focus onto himself and onto his message and his response, and that's where we pick up this morning. Here in verse 14, Paul says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, as you can see here, Paul is launching this comment off of what he just said in verse 13 about the false teachers boasting in the flesh of the Galatians. They boast or they want to boast in your flesh, but I don't have anything to boast in except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is telling them, I don't have anything to boast in related to you, Galatians. The false teachers want to boast in something in relation to you, but I don't, I don't really have that. I'm not going to go out of here and be like, you know, yay me, X number of Galatians who were Jewish by birth have gone back to the Old Testament law and now see that as being the way of salvation. Woohoo. Or, or yay me, X number of Gentiles in Galatia have now recognized that there's no way to be made acceptable with God apart from keeping the law. Therefore, they've been circumcised and they're now going to do all the things that Moses commanded. Aren't I amazing? There's no boasting for Paul in the Galatians. In fact, there's no boasting for Paul in anything related either to himself or to his ministry. The only thing he says that he has to boast in is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross is the only thing he finds value and worth in. Now, you and I read that statement, and likely a number of different thoughts or emotions begin to go through our heart and mind as we, as we see those words there. For example, we might feel some admiration or respect for Paul. I mean, what a, what a statement, right? What, what a guy. To, to, and I mean that in all the right ways, to be able to say that he has no other boast in life except the cross of Jesus. 
And we read that, and we should feel some admiration for him. We should feel some respect, some godly respect for that kind of person who can say this kind of thing. At the same time, we probably feel a little bit of guilt and or jealousy, perhaps, at the comment, because we recognize that perhaps we should feel that same way, that we should have no other boast except in the Lord cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet we don't actually feel like that. So we feel guilty, maybe a little jealous, like maybe I wish we were more like that. Maybe you feel inspired or motivated, like I'm going to go out and boast in nothing but the cross. You know, you, you might have a number of feelings and emotions that go through your heart or mind when you read or hear that statement. But I would imagine that none of us read that statement and feel confused or repulsed by it that those two thoughts or emotions didn't even cross the mind of a single person in this room. And yet, that would have been the natural and first feeling of anyone in Paul's day who would hear him or read here what he wrote, say these words that he boasts in nothing but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because at the time Paul is saying this, the cross is a symbol of public shame in the minds of pretty much everyone in the Roman world. It's a symbol of public shame. It's not a symbol of salvation yet. It's not a symbol of religion. It's a symbol of public shame. And this, of course, is why I brought up the topic of public shame in the beginning, because I'm, you know, I'm trying to read it and trying to feel a little bit of what the first readers would have felt in reading that comment. And, you know, I'm getting the sense, I understand what the cross was to them, and I'm like, well, what would be the modern-day equivalent of that for us? What would be the modern-day equivalent where if I said to you, hey, I boast in nothing but this, everyone in here would be like, ugh. Like, what's wrong with Stacy for even saying such a thing? And I honestly couldn't think of a single thing. The closest I could come to was that story of, of our family's bankruptcy, how the shame of that was so great that my parents felt they had to move away from the town we lived in up to that point. But even then, I still think that falls way short because in Paul's day, the Roman cross was even more shameful than that. It was a sign that you had been condemned as a criminal or enemy by the state. Because you're going to be made an example now for everyone to see. You know, you're going to be paraded through the streets. You see it in Jesus' case. That was pretty standard practice. You're going to be paraded through the streets. Make a big deal of it. Everybody, look, this person's getting ready to go be crucified. When you get there, you're going to be stripped naked just to add to the shame of the moment so that you're exposed for the entire world to see. Um, You're going to be nailed to a cross where you're going to slowly suffocate, perhaps, over the course of multiple days. And... The Romans pretty much always followed this practice. They would hang you either next to the city walls or at least next to a major roadway so that everyone could see. Everyone could see. They used crucifixion as if you're a billboard. Here's what happens to the people who cross Rome. Don't be this person. But on the bright side, at least you got to die. Your poor family, though, who was left behind, was not so lucky. And they would continue to bear the humiliation of your crucifixion long after you were dead and gone. 
It was a terrible thing in the Roman world, nothing that you would ever boast about, especially if you're Jewish, because in the Jewish mind, not only is the person condemned as a criminal by Rome, but they must also be condemned by God. The verse here, Deuteronomy 21, 23, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. In fact, Paul reminded us of those very words back in chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So so in the, the Jewish mind, the Roman cross is doubly shameful. Not only are you ashamed because you are a criminal or an enemy of the state who's going to be exposed in a public way, made a billboard for the Roman government to say, don't be like this guy, but, but you're also going to be shamed in a religious sense because God is clearly cursing you and this is the result of that. I, I can't think of a single thing, can you, in our day and age that would even come close to this, of what the cross represents This is why, Paul says elsewhere, the message of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. If you are non-Jew and you hear someone stand up and say, I want to talk to you about the cross, they're going to be like, what is wrong with you? It's foolishness to the Greeks and it's offensive to the Jews. You're going to talk to me about the cross? The cross is is where someone who's cursed by God goes to die. What, What are you talking to me about that for? Yet, Paul says here, He has nothing else to boast in except that. When other people turn away from the cross, Paul turns to it. Or other people hide it, he openly talks about it. So for him, the the cross, an object of shame and punishment and curse, is his source of forgiveness and hope and boasting. The average person in Paul's day who reads the statement that we just so quickly glance right over, don't even think twice about except maybe feeling a little admiration or maybe a little guilt, they would get stopped by that verse dead in their tracks. They wouldn't probably move past it for a while because there's nothing like it. Paul, for Paul, it's nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, for him, he sees it as a turning point. He says because it's in the cross that a two-way death has occurred. On the one hand, the world has been crucified to me, Paul says. So he, he no longer wants to live for this world. He, he, he has been able now to, to see past the veil and recognize that there's something beyond what I see with my eyes. There's something bigger than all of this something better that's worth living for, and that I don't have to give my life to this world and all the things that it calls me to. This world is not Paul's home anymore. On the other hand, that's okay because Paul says, I've also been crucified to the world, meaning the, the world as Paul knows it now views him as dead. He's nothing to the world now. His Jewish world, the world around him, he's, he's nothing. He's trash. He's garbage. He can be killed, thrown away. It doesn't matter. A two-way death has occurred here. He's dead to the world. The world is dead to him all through the cross of Christ. He continues, he says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And this is partly referring back to his comment about not boasting in anything except uh, the cross of Christ. You see, the false teachers wanted to boast in the flesh, literally, right, of the Galatians. And, you know, they want to go back home and say, look at how many people were circumcised. Aren't we something special? Look at what we've done. Well, if they're boasting on that side of the equation then you might think that Paul would boast on the other side of the equation. Hey, look at how many people I prevented from being circumcised. Aren't I something? That, 
That's probably how you and I would sort of operate in that context, thinking if they're on one side, we need to be on the other. But you see, both of those approaches miss the point of Paul's letter here. It's not about your circumcision. And it's not about your uncircumcision. If we're talking in those those realms, those contexts, we're, we're missing the point. You see, that's thinking nationally, as if either being or not being a part of the nation of Israel had something to do with God's acceptance of you. Or that's thinking ethnically, as if either being or not being a physical descendant of Abraham has something to do with the way God views you. That's thinking religiously, as if either following or not following the Old Testament law has something to do with whether or not God would save you. It doesn't matter which side of those equations you are on, the fact that you're using those equations at all to try to make that decision proves you've missed the point. Do you get it? It's not about the equations. It's not about which side of the equation you're on. So it doesn't matter if you're circumcised. It doesn't matter if you're uncircumcised. It's not a physical mark on your body and whatever that represents to you that matters at all now. Why? Well, what's the message of the Galatians? To the Galatians, it's because God has made a new creation now. And you're part of that new creation through faith. You see, the new creation is tied up in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul's already covered this. Here's Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 to 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And what was the guardian? You remember? It was the law. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, You are all sons of God through faith. That's the new creation. It's no longer about just being, you know, this or that. No, you get to be sons of God through faith. This is the new thing that God has done. So he continues, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the new thing he's done. And this is something new, again, he's doing. It's no longer about your ethnicity, uh, your status, your gender, or any other distinction that you can think of. The only thing that matters as to whether or not you are right with God is your faith. Your faith in Jesus. That's it. Circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. Slave, free, none of this stuff matters. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you're now part of this new creation, and if you haven't, you're not. So faith is now the dividing line, not nationality. And faith is now the dividing line, not ethnicity. And faith is now the dividing line, not circumcision. Faith is now the dividing line, not the Old Testament law. It all comes back to faith and to the cross. Now, we'll pause one last time and finish the text of Galatians next Sunday, but I want to take just a few minutes to consider one aspect of what we've seen this morning, and it's this comment here at the end of verse 15 about the fact that we're part of a new creation. And when you read that language, um, you will likely, if you're familiar with your New Testament at all, think of probably a number of passages where this kind of idea is discussed, because the idea does come up over and over again throughout the New Testament in different ways, uh, just generally speaking. But the phrase itself is repeated exactly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. These are familiar verses. Just listen as I read. Paul writes, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, 
if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Okay, there's the phrase. You all remember, you've probably heard that before. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, the phrasing in these two passages is the same, right? New creation. But the context and the application of them are different. In Galatians 6, Paul seems to be thinking and speaking uh, systemically, okay? Meaning, he's referring to an entirely new system. It's not the old system of Jew versus Gentile anymore that God is using. It's now the new system of faith. Faith in Christ life by the Spirit. That old system of circumcised versus uncircumcised, of of the law, its requirements, its dividing line, all of that has come to an end. We are now in a new system, a new creation, life of faith, walking by the Spirit. So here in Galatians 6, we need to think systemically. We need to think broadly, high level. We need to understand a plan of God for salvation in Galatians chapter 6. Okay, does that make sense? But in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul applies that same concept at the personal level now. So from now on, I read it again, therefore we, you and I, we should regard no one, no individual, according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, you personally. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old you is gone. And so just like the system is new, you now are new. The old has passed away, he says. Behold, the new has come. All this in your individual life is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What what does that mean when he says that he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, it means that in God's new creation system, his mission is now yours. His mission to bring people to himself and make them right with him through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, that's your mission now. It's not any more complicated than that. What he's doing in Galatians 6 is now yours to do in 2 Corinthians 5. That is that in Christ, through his life and death, God was reconciling the world to himself. And why did the world need to be reconciled? Because it was separated from God because of sin, right? You know that, I hope. God's wrath was against the world because of sin, so we're separated. But yet, in Christ, he is not counting their trespasses against them. He is willing to to take all of the world's trespasses and sins and put them on his son. And then in exchange to uh, give us his own son's righteousness, he entrusts to us 
now this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. What is an ambassador class? It's, a, it's just a person who goes out and represents someone else. You are God's ambassador. You are Christ's ambassador. It doesn't matter what your profession is, what you do. You are his ambassador who's been given a message of reconciliation. You, is as if God is making his appeal through you, through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's all it is. It's you going out imploring people, please be reconciled to God. Please, there's separation between you and him. I can tell you how that gets fixed. And it's not through what you do. It's not through any system you have. It is through Jesus and Jesus only. Be reconciled to God, which is why then he ends with the gospel. For our sake, he, God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the message. So I don't care what you do. I don't care if you're a housewife, a student, an office worker, a mechanic, a retiree, a teenager. It doesn't matter. You're a believer in Jesus? That's, there you go. That's your new creation mission. You just go out and you implore people, be reconciled to God. That's not hard. Go out and implore them. Please, please, please be reconciled to God through Jesus alone. It's not Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus the law or Jesus plus their good works or Jesus plus their church attendance or Jesus plus anything else. The message of reconciliation is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is our mission. This is our message. This is our ministry. And like Paul, this is our only boast and our only hope, both now and for all eternity. Remember that this morning. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we have nothing but you. Apart from you, we, we are still separated, unreconciled with the Father. We have no hope. Yet this is what you have done, God, in sending your Son. This is the new creation that you have made where it's no longer about the old systems. It's the new system of faith in Jesus alone. And faith is now the dividing line. And faith is what it is we are calling people to. We implore them on your behalf to be reconciled to you. And we tell them the truth that you gave your own sacrifice. You paid the way for them. You provided a way so that their sins could be paid for and that Jesus' righteousness could be theirs. This is our mission this is our message and this is our ministry. This is why Paul can go out and boast in something that would be so publicly shameful in his day. Because it is the cross that is the beautiful, beautiful symbol of reconciliation that you yourself have given us. And so I pray, Lord, that we'll go out of here not just maybe feeling guilty that we don't live up to these things, not maybe feeling guilty that our boast isn't the cross like Paul but that we will recognize, Jesus, that you are enough and all we have to do is go out and, and give you to people. Share the good news of your work for us to everyone around us, everyone you put in our life. Please motivate us, encourage us to this end, and empower and do it through us, we ask in your precious name.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.